0: This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now let's hear from Tammy. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. Today, our guest is none other than Dr. Tyrone McKinley Freeman. Dr. Freeman is a 2022 inaugural laureate of the Dan David Research Prize, known as the largest history prize in the world. It's a really big deal. He's an award-winning scholar and teacher serving as associate professor of Philanthropic Studies at the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. Previously, Dr. Freeman was a professional fundraiser just like many of us, working in community development, youth and family social services, and higher education. He was also Associate Director of the Fundraising School, where he trained nonprofit leaders here in the U.S. as well as Asia, Africa, and Europe. His research focuses on philanthropy in communities of color and philanthropy in higher education. His latest book, Madam C.J. Walker's Gospel of Giving, Black Women's Philanthropy During Jim Crow, won AFP's Skystone Partners Research Prize in Fundraising and Philanthropy and the Terry McAdam Book Award from the Alliance for Nonprofit Management. His work has appeared or been cited in so many amazing publications. The New York Times, the oh, the Oprah Magazine, Time Magazine, Harvard Business Review, Stanford Social Innovation Review, Black Perspectives, The Chronicle of Philanthropy, Case Currents, and Advancing Philanthropy. He's also co-author of Race, Gender, and Leadership in Nonprofit Organizations. Support for this show is brought to you by Bloomerang. Our friends at Bloomerang really understand fundraisers, which is why they make donor management and online fundraising software that nonprofits love to use. To learn more and to join them in their vision of building a world inspired by giving, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional fundraiser. Dr. Freeman, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Tammy. Really appreciate it.
0: Oh, it's our pleasure. I I shared I was giddy and almost breathless. Just so excited to talk with you today.
1: Oh, same here. Same here. Let's dig in.
0: (laughs) All right. Let's talk about Madam C.J. Walker. She was born in 1867 to formerly enslaved parents and became a beauty culture entrepreneur. In fact, a very successful entrepreneur becoming America's first self-made female millionaire. She was an incredible woman and also a visionary and a generous philanthropist. Dr. Freeman, tell us about Madam Walker and her gospel of giving and and why her story is relevant now more than ever.
1: Yeah, well, as you said, uh, she was an incredible person who became historically significant but uh, I really wanted to kind of dig into the role of philanthropy in her life because the, the lore around her and even the history around her is about being, a, you know, becoming a millionaire during the height of Jim Crow segregation on the lowest points in American history for African-Americans. Um, there's also, you know, she ran this company, this beauty care business. Uh, and so the lots about her being an entrepreneur, but she also was reportedly very generous. And so I wanted to know the story behind that generosity and what was she doing? How did she think about it, talk about it? And what was she trying to accomplish? And so that's what really uh, you know pulled me into her story more to uncover the philanthropic roots of it. And what I discovered was that unlike some of her contemporaries that in familiar names we all know as fundraisers, Andrew Carnegie, John D. Rockefeller, who have this model of giving where you spend your life accumulating wealth and then later become focused on philanthropy. Uh, For her, philanthropy was something that actually started early in her life. When she was a struggling, young, widowed mother trying to make ends meet, and philanthropy is something that evolves for her then when she's a part of a church community in St. Louis and interacting with other Black women in her community who are also doing these things, helping other people, sharing resources. And so philanthropy then becomes something that evolves across her lifetime. And so what I articulate as her gospel of giving is this idea that you can give along the way, you don't have to wait, but it's something something that you can start now, regardless of the size of your bank account, and it can something that can grow with you over time. And I show how it actually grew with her over time. So as she eventually did acquire significant wealth, she was already doing these sorts of things. So she had more to give rather than kind of trying to begin this new type of activity. And it also shows that philanthropy is not limited to money because while she did give away money, she also gave her time. She lended her voice and her influence to important causes such as anti-lynching and for women's voting rights and raising up the issues uh, that Black soldiers fighting in World War I experienced. So it really shows the versatility of philanthropy. And again, it challenges this limited notion that one, that only white people give, and two, that really philanthropy is about money rather than a broader notion of generosity and different types of resources that might be helpful to others. Mm. Extraordinary.
0: Such an extraordinary story. How did that generosity of spirit and honestly, that boldness, that tenacity, I mean, in the times to be a female entrepreneur, let alone a black female entrepreneur, really Mm -hmm. took courage and she encountered quite, of course, during Jim Crow, she encountered quite often racism as -hmm. part of her everyday life. How did she find that courage? What did you learn about her tenacity and where it came from?
1: Yeah. Racism and sexism. Right. And so, yeah, it would be. So one, she was incredibly driven that she really had this dream and this vision of building something and helping Black women develop products and, you know, and and have their beauty needs, their aesthetic needs met in a way that the marketplace wasn't paying attention to and allowing their own beauty to shine. So that's one thing. But then also just when she started, you know, she started selling her products door to door. And so, as you would imagine, that's a very grueling process. And so, but she just kept at it and she started traveling and, and, and opening up new markets. And the business kind of slowly grows over time. And she set up her the headquarters in Indianapolis in 1910, built a factory, and then it kind of goes on to become this, even this international. She has some international markets in, in Spanish-speaking countries and other areas. So it really is an incredible story. So it, it shows just, again, this commitment to a vision, this desire to not only improve her own situation, but to improve the situation for African-Americans as a whole, and especially for Black women. And so her company then becomes a platform for providing economic opportunities to Black women so they could become financially independent because the Jim Crow economy only wanted them to be domestic workers and and to not make gainful wages so they could take care of their families. But a woman could become a Walker agent and and she could work for the company or she could kind of hang her own shingle and, and do hair out of her home. Or even Madam Walker had it an incubation program where she would give money to agents so that they could renovate a facility and open up their own shop. And so there are many different pathways to kind of financial independence. She was very much about empowering Black women to themselves, their families, and their communities. And so she very much also modeled this for the people around her agents to not only give to charity but to participate in the anti-lynching movement the women's voting rights movement and many things. So in many ways she's doing what we now think of as as social entrepreneurship and benefit corporations and all those kinds of things. Now, she's doing a version of that over 120 years ago is pretty powerful.
0: Yeah, amazing. And you really draw out the point in the book around the five types of gifts that she gave. So you mentioned them, opportunity, education, activism, of course, financial support, material resources, and legacy. Yes, legacy yes, giving. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's really to, to draw out that idea that that philanthropy is broad, particularly in this African American tradition of giving, which again goes back to the beginning of the American experience. It's not something that's new or more recent. With the rise of black billionaires like Oprah Winfrey and Robert F. Smith, it goes back. And even you know to kind of prove that point, it was older black women in the church community who taught Madam Walker how to do this. So that speaks to this notion of a multi generational thing that goes back, and it. Gives it's translated to each generation. And so I named the chapters for the different types of gifts to really emphasize this point that philanthropy is about more than money and to show, again, how she thought about this across the many different resources that she had. And so, again, her company becomes a basis for providing the gift of opportunity in a society that didn't want to extend opportunity to African-Americans. Her network of beauty schools becomes a way of becoming educated and earning a credential that will allow you to, to develop a pathway for economic independence, again, in a society that didn't want to educate African-Americans and lock them out of higher education. And, you know, an activism just goes along with, again, the, the trying to navigate the world as a black woman, because one of the ironies of the situation is that, yes, she becomes this millionaire. But as far as Jim Crow goes, that doesn't matter. She's still black. She's still female. She's still subject to the possibility of lynching, rape, humiliation, other types of violations. So again, speaking out. Reusing her voice, using her celebrity to raise uh, attention on these various issues is very important and is part of the overall movement and, and the struggle for freedom. And then certainly the monetary gifts, uh, the many different types of organizations she was supporting, and then legacy. I wanted to, to lay out how she was very thoughtful about how she wanted to be remembered and also how she distributed her resources. So I tell the story of, of her last will and testament and how it was organized and how that has played out even decades later.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I encourage everyone to buy this book, read it cover to cover. Not only is it just so moving and inspiring, but I think that it really illuminates how deeply entrenched black philanthropy really is and how generous. And to your point, how it's just passed generation to generation. And I think that that is as true today as it was during Madam Walker's time. You know, you wrote an article in the Chronicle of Philanthropy a year or so ago called Black Donor Silence is a Call to Action, Not Retreat. And you really brilliantly make the point that philanthropy is largely whitewashed. Like you mentioned it at the beginning of our conversation here, you know, there was a a narrative that was predominantly driven by wealthy white men like Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie. And to this day, it's a problem that we, as nonprofit organizations, we typically approach communities of color with the same storyline or the same approach in which we approach white communities. And that narrative doesn't necessarily resonate. And then we walk away assuming that the silence is lack of interest, but that's not the case. Yeah. Yeah. So so, what do you think that silence is saying and how can we engage communities of color in ways that truly and authentically respect their experiences and their interests?
1: Yeah, I think that silence is an invitation to engage um as you mentioned before like this is not new this philanthropy goes back throughout history and it is very prevalent today it literally is under your nose you just may not see it or not know where to to go for it it is certainly wrapped up in the black church and other religious institutions but beyond that outside religious communities it's operating in in black fraternities and sororities and African Americans have been participating in the giving circle explosion that America has been experiencing over the past couple of decades as well, just like everyone else. And so there are many different spaces and places where this giving takes place. And so I wrote that particular piece because I was hearing fundraisers say, well, you know, I, I'm inviting my diverse constituents. I'm communicating with them in terms of they get our magazine or our communications, and they're they're not showing up or they're not coming or they're not responding. So I just I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. And so so that's where this, kind of this this piece came from. We're saying, well, no, lean into that silence. There's a reason behind it. Something is not resonating. Something is not connecting. And so the task becomes, what is that? Trying to find out what that is. And so letting your curiosity kind of guide you there and reaching out and trying to meet people on their own terms and understand what really galvanizes them and excites them and begin to then reflect that back um, in your communications and in the opportunities for engagement. It's really about creating kind of equitable pathways for engagement rather than kind of pushing the same ones and only catering to a small portion of the population. It's seeing people on their own terms from a philanthropic standpoint and then developing ways to, to cultivate and engage that interest and participation in a meaningful way in the life of our organizations so that they can not only see themselves but also contribute and feel connected to the mission in ways that are so important that we know is important to this kind of engagement and to long-term support. So that really I encourage 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 you to to, uh, fundraisers to lean into it, because at the end of the day, fundraisers have a lot of control over how they do their work, because we decide who gets an invitation and who doesn't, who gets the letter and who doesn't, who gets a phone call or a visit. So what if you start mixing it up and you put some people on those lists who historically have not been on those lists or who somehow don't make it through the screening mechanisms that you have and start tending to them and see what you might find out, again, to learn more about your constituencies and share and expand the reach of your mission.
0: Yeah, I love that. You know, I can tell you for nine years, I was the chief philanthropy officer at the Children's Center in Detroit. Okay. Okay. And I remember early in that tenure, we had an event, a mission-focused event, beautiful testimonial stories, inspiring stories. And, you know, in Detroit, over 80% of the population identifies as black So it's just a Mm -hmm. very rich black community. And Mm -hmm. the children's center is in Midtown, like the heart of the city, serving children and families, a great majority of them who identify as people of color. And yet as I stood in that ballroom with more than 500 people, it was largely a sea of Caucasian people, a sea of white. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I remember having a conversation with one of my board members like there's something wrong here like we mm. are not inviting we're not appealing in in ways that are compelling to this really generous community that we have yeah and we yeah. and it's it's a loss for our organization and it's a loss for the community at large and certainly those that were who are participating in our programs like it really is going to take all of us to solve these problems yeah. And, yeah. and we don't have everyone we need at the table.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I totally understand and relate to that because you're right. I think what we were saying earlier, it goes back to everybody doesn't connect with the same stories, that they might have a different experience of your organization or a different experience with the issue that your organization is dealing with. So it's important to understand that dynamic so that it that can be communicated possibly or emphasized in ways that will resonate. Because again, we can constantly be missing, even though we think, Right, the message is on point or or the outreach is on point. Uh, so that's why I said the silence is an invitation to engage. Yes,
0: yes. And so having followed you and read your material, like we leaned into that. And we, we had some of our uh, board members who are black community members, mm-hmm. host gatherings with their circle of influence, not just to let's tell them about the Children's Center, although that was part of it, but mostly it was to listen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was to talk about the issues facing families in the city of Detroit and to get their thoughts about them. And and just exactly what you're saying, to lean into it and to invite people to share their point of view. Mm -hmm. And it was so illuminating.
1: Yeah, yeah
0: you know, especially as we talk about the, we're getting smarter, like Dr. Maya Angelou said, of course, when we know better, we do better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And right. what, and what we learned is that we were really feeding kind of that white savior complex in the way we told our stories, in the way we made our case, and that it was like one narrative. And what mm-hmm. there, there was a wonderful TEDx talk I'm forgetting the brilliant woman who did it
1: the but danger it, of a single story yes the uh-huh. danger of
0: a single mm-hmm. story and mm-hmm. we were like we were the stereotype for that so I just mm-hmm. applaud your work and that conversation well, Thank you. and and I think there's so much value as you said for all of us to lean into it into that silence and to not just share our single story but to ask multiple questions
1: Yes, yeah, there's there's many stories out there and it's important to kind of understand that and how your your constituents however they're defined patients, students, patrons, I mean whatever they are, right? What what is their experience with our organization? What is their experience with our mission? And then to be able to take that information back and then process that. It says, now, what does this mean for how we operate, for how we communicate, for how we organize ourselves internally so we're better prepared, right, to engage those who support us?
0: Yes, and that's a great segue to another point that I wanted to get your point of view on. You know, I recently read an article that said, less than 25% of nonprofit board chair positions, so the chairperson, the head of the board, Less than 25% of those positions are held by women or people of color. And Mm -hmm. I found that so disappointing. Like, isn't equity and inclusion in leadership a prerequisite to authentically engaging communities of color? And and where and how do we begin?
1: It's very important um, because people know when it's just performance. They know when it's tokenism. They know when it's kind of checking off the boxes versus when it really is kind of an integrated, meaningful, substantive kind of rethinking of who we are and how we operate and organize ourselves. And so, and those are some of the cues, those are some of the signals we, we we send out that we may not even realize that we're sending out. And so that's why it does start with the board. And we know a lot about the impact of diversity on boards and we, there's more and more research specifically on nonprofit boards. There's a whole universe of, of, of literature on corporate boards and diversity. So, I mean, we've been studying this for a long time. The issue is really now to, to take it and to do something with it. And we know that diverse boards have have better outcomes and and even nonprofit boards with higher percentages of women, right, have higher levels of engagement and fundraising and, and advocacy and other kinds of things. So it's it's important to kind of understand that and then to be sure that it's reflected. And, and I think part of it has to do with again not only the composition of our boards. How, how our boards operate, but then also our executive leadership, our mid-level staff, our frontline staff, um, making sure that there's a sense of, of diversity, equity, inclusion across the ranks. But then again, how we organize ourselves, our budgets, are we funding this work? What does it mean to fund this work in our organizations? Whether you are doing specific initiatives for your constituents of color, it's common, for instance, for universities to have affinity groups based on social identity. Um, Are you resourcing it, right? Is it in this year's budget and next year's budget and the one after that and five years from now and 10 years from now? This is not a one and done, and it has to be a priority, something that's constantly on the agenda, that's being monitored, measured, and constantly talked about, um, especially if we're coming out of organizations with a history of not engaging, right? So there's a lot of work to do, and we have to give ourselves uh, ways of monitoring our work as we keep taking steps forward to be sure we get to where we ultimately want and need to be. And even that notion of getting to where we want to be is kind of continual, right? You're never quite fully there, right? So it it really does need to become this kind of inculcated aspect of, of your organization from the top to the bottom across, uh, you know, and, and across the operation as well.
0: Yeah. And you make such a powerful point. We're we're never really done. Hmm. Right. Just like culture. Like we never say, check the box. Like, yeah, our culture is fantastic. Right. It's constant tending and intention and devotion.
1: Yes, it does. And this is where, again, thinking about your operations. So, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, fundraisers who have a portfolio of donors. Right. I mean, starts with asking yourself some questions. How diverse is that portfolio? right? And if it's not, can you add some people to it? What does that look like? And how does the larger organizational conversation and management structure support that? You know, I'm in touch with with institutions that are intentionally assigning donors of color and prospects of color into portfolios to be sure uh, the engagement is there and that no one is overlooked. Uh, So, you know, there's many different ways to do this. I know of another institution that is doing a a diversity climate survey, but they're including advancement and really looking at, again, who's been visited, who hasn't been visited, and and how these things affect the day-to-day work of fundraisers and and alumni engagement folks. So it's important to to ask ourselves these questions because it does it shows up in what we do every day. Mm -hmm. So we've got to be very intentional. And we can be we can be high level strategic, right, in terms of moving the whole organization forward with respect to these issues of diversity, equity, inclusion. We also are thinking about what's happening with those frontline folks and how they do their work as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think those of us who work in the nonprofit sector, we're very mission driven. We definitely want to make change in the world. And yeah. and that's not limited to the mission, like the mission delivery. Sometimes mm-hmm. I think that change could be creating that inclusive infrastructure, shifting that culture, right? It it could be a 360 degree opportunity for legacy, for real nice. transformation. Our friends at Bloomering know the importance of year-end fundraising to a nonprofit's longevity and success throughout the year. We know that 50% of nonprofits receive a majority of their annual contributions from October to December. To learn how you can make the most of this giving season, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional fundraiser to get your copy of the 13 year-end fundraising tips.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, fundraisers are really catalysts in more ways than one. And they can, you know, they can have a lot of impact without providing the direct service or, or doing the, the main thing that their their mission might be focused on. But by resourcing that and directing the, the right resources to the right places, you can shape, right, the, the, the culture of your institution, the agenda of the organization. And so I think it is important to reflect upon our role there uh, and how we can uh, shift and be uh, internal leaders that can affect attitudes and perceptions and try to help shape priorities, especially since we're often the leading edge of our institutions, because we're out, right, connecting with people and bringing that back and letting leadership know the kinds of things that we're hearing and the kinds of concerns that are out there. Those are the, are the resources and information and the capital we bring back that can be used uh, to to affect organizational priorities and the ways that we do this work.
0: Yeah, and it really can be an exciting opportunity you know? A calling. Absolutely. So, I would suspect that there are not many people who know Madam Walker as well as you do.
1: <laughs> There's a few. <laughs> no. There's many. There's many. Yes.
0: Well, f- from what you do know, yeah. what advice do you think Madam Walker would give nonprofit leaders today? about mm. creating uh about creating more diverse, inclusive, and equitable organizations and communities.
1: Wow, that's a good question. You know, so one of the things I like to highlight is that the way in which Madam Walker interacted with the organizations that she, she supported speaks volumes because she she related to them as a person to person. She didn't kind of Hold her resources over them, or above them, or try to get them to do things that would benefit her more than them. And so, this getting back to this notion of the relationships within philanthropy is very important. And I think as fundraisers, we're stewards of these relationships. So thinking about this is important. So how we're interacting with our constituents is very important. How we're interacting with our donors, and even with our uh, you know the, the people who benefit from our mission is so very important. And being good stewards there. And so she she would yeah, I think she would tell us that to you know make sure we're valuing those personal relationships, valuing people, um, meeting them where they are. Um, you know, she was one who would, uh, yeah, she she wrote some big checks to do some things, but again, she also would would share food with neighbors and and became a you know uh, people looked forward to the turkeys that she would make available during Christmas and Thanksgiving on her block and and things like that. So um, I think again, relating to people in very human ways that honor the dignity and and humanity of each other is very important. And I, and I think there's some lessons. You know, one of the chapters is about her company, and so again, thinking about the ways that. She 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 organized her company as this kind of dual commercial and philanthropic institution, had this larger social purpose. She certainly wanted to move product. She's never shied away from that or ashamed of that. But she was very intentional that we're helping people become economic self sufficient um, to, to address the needs of African-Americans as they pursue freedom. Um, and so that showed up in the opportunities that she created and, and the ways in which she helped people you know, take on different roles within the company. So I think there's an opportunity for us to think internally about how we do business, how We're organized what are the opportunities for promotion and development and are we equitable and making those available to our, our staff um, and our and, and supporting our volunteers with training and support as well. There are a lot of kind of internal resources and things that are part of our organizational lives that can also have these barriers or issues with getting out equitably and allowing people, you know, opportunities to advance, to be promoted or to share, even to have their ideas honored and respected uh, or acknowledged when they're implemented. Right. So there's there's so many ways that this can show up in the day to day lives and and, and operations of our organizations.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Really timeless. Mm -hmm. She was a timeless leader. So good. Well, Dr. Freeman, at the end of each episode, I like to ask a few rapid fire questions just to give a little more value add to our listeners. Are you game? I'm game. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Here we go. First one. What's the best fundraising advice you've ever been given?
1: For about almost seven years, I was, had the privilege of being the associate director of the fundraising school when Dr. Timothy Seiler was the director. And so I was privileged to work under him and be mentored by him. And one of the things he said to me that's been so important is that, you know, our job as fundraisers is to earn the right to ask. And I always thought that that was so important because it speaks to the nobility of the work that we do. It speaks to keeping people first and getting to know them, understanding them on their own terms. Right. and then uh, being responsive right, and, and in terms of, sh- of advocating and sharing our community-affirmed mission and presenting it in ways that resonate with them. And so this idea of earning that right to ask, I think speaks volumes in this moment, given concerns about diversity, equity, inclusion, communities that have been left out, ignored, even neglected, right. if if we're thinking about engaging and going down that path after not engaging, I think it's useful to have that orientation. How do we earn that trust? How do we earn that right to ask? And what do we need to do? So I think that means listening. I think that means leaning in and reaching out and getting to know people on their own terms.
0: I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you're not necessarily like building trust from a neutral space. You're could be building it from a deficit space. That's and, r- absolutely right, yeah. And so patience.
1: Yes. Patience. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I love that absolutely. advice.
0: And lots, lots of respect for Dr. Seiler for sure.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: <laughs> All right, next question. What book do you recommend to our audience and why?
1: Oh boy, so wow. Um, so I have to recommend um, Collecting Courage which is an edited volume um, by Nika Allen, N-N-E-K-A Allen, um, a good friend of mine and um, a Canadian fundraiser, a Black Canadian fundraiser. And uh, two of her colleagues It's a collection of essays of 14 fundraisers of color sharing their experiences in our field. And uh, the highs and the lows, the, the joys and the pains, and these are stories that you don't typically hear. And I think it's very important to, to hear and honor their voices and their experiences, particularly in light of the larger questions we're now asking ourselves as a profession and as a field. And so that's a wonderful book for, for doing that and becoming connected to that.
0: Fabulous. We will include a link to that book in the show
1: yeah. notes. Oh, I agree. Wonderful. Yeah, Every, yeah.
0: Everyone should read that.
1: Yeah, and if I may, I'm a professor too, you know. So there's a couple of others I would throw out there because. Oh, bring um, it on! Yeah, one of my favorite books um, is is called "Growing Givers' Hearts," and it's by Tom Jevons and Rebecca Basinger, and it's a book that's oriented towards religious or uh, fundraisers of uh, from a Christian perspective, uh, but I find it useful because it, it it not only it speaks to this idea of fundraising as ministry. And even if you're not religious, I mean, I think it's something to think about. What if we're doing something more than the the apparent transaction? What are the possibilities if we entered into this work with uh, genuine care for the people we're meeting with and interacting with and building relationships with? And if there's this opportunity right, to do something more uh, 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 than than the obvious that's happening, I think it's powerful. So that's a very that's a wonderful book, too, that um, gives us can give us an interesting way of thinking about the work that we do on a daily basis.
0: Yes. Wonderful. Any other recommendations? Oh, I like like threes.
1: Yeah, you may not (laughs) want to get me started, but no, yes, I will. So um, there's there's also a book out um, recently called uh, White Philanthropy by Maribel Moray. Who's a good friend of mine, and is is a um, historian, and she is is tracing the origins and development of Andrew Carnegie's philanthropy, and how it showed up in the early years of of his philanthropic foundations, and she shows the the development of white ra- uh, white racist and supremacist ideology, and how that affected the early grant making um, into the 20th century, into the mid 20th century. and So I think there's that's a very important contribution now for fundraisers to read that so they can understand how these things work and then how the, that ideology was perpetuated globally by these Carnegie institutions. And so it's a very powerful book that I think gives us, again, uh, more things to think about and reflect upon in the state of our field today. Yeah,
0: very good. Thank yeah. you. All right, next, what are the top three characteristics one needs to possess to be a successful fundraiser?
1: Okay, uh, so I would say curious. Um, Being curious is... Wonderful, allowing your curiosities to, uh, you know, explore those curiosities with respect to building relationships with people and getting to know them and understand them, uh, the people who support you, your donors. Um, I think that curiosity can serve you well, and then having those conversations and and getting to know what makes them tick and what what how they resonate with the mission and the things that they're concerned about, and then finding those those intersections and opportunities to 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 create again these equitable pathways for engagement. So I would definitely raise up curiosity. I also think generosity is important. You know, we're asking people to do something and we should be willing to do those things ourselves. And so, right. And so whether it's giving of our, our, our time, our talent, our money, um, I think that's important to set that example and that model. And since we're out engaging others, and I think it also it gives us a way of checking ourselves as well, too, because with, if we're donors, if we're volunteers, we can be mindful of of how we're being treated by other organizations and and be sure that we're, you know, um, doing the best we can for for the donors that we're stewarding on behalf of our, our employers. And so, you know, if you're a volunteer and, and you weren't quite acknowledged or thank you, you can remember that and bring that into your next volunteer event, right? To make sure that you you don't omit anyone or leave someone out. Uh, so I think that, you know, that generosity is, is is important, not only to kind of model what we're asking people to do, but also to participate more broadly in philanthropy. And also we can get insights that can continually improve our practice. Yeah, very good. Yeah. And the last one, um, I would say being reflective. Being reflective, I think, is very important. A reflective practitioner, thinking about the way you do your work, um, how you present yourselves, uh, what you learn from fundraising by being out in the field doing it. What does a particular donor relationship need? Uh, what is? What are the next steps? These are all opportunities for reflection. And then certainly where our conversation began, particularly when it relates to these larger issues related to diversity, equity, inclusion, there's lots of opportunity for reflection there in terms of who we are engaging, and who we aren't, and what might we do about that um, and, and creating space. To do that individually, but also as a part of our team, if we're, if we are part of fundraising teams or even in a one person shop, how you might, whether interacting with your executive or whomever you might report to, to, to say, what are we learning about doing this work that can enhance our practice, help us get better and be sure that we're treating everyone equitably and fairly. And as we move towards these goals, because sometimes we can get so caught up in metrics and things we lose sight of the people that we're dealing with and the people on our teams who are doing that work. So that reflective practice is an important part as well.
0: I absolutely agree and love that. And I feel like in the nonprofit sector, I can speak for teams I've led and myself and groups that I train and coach, they're so busy running from meeting to meeting, eating, uh, maybe getting lunch over a keyboard or a string on there. And there's so little time for reflection. I mean, it really has to be scheduled into your calendar if it's going to happen.
1: Yeah. And it's so important, right? It's easy to kind of get lost in the hustle and bustle, but you need those moments, you know, and, and, uh, you know, you're right. We will have the meeting and then we're trying to do the, enter the, enter the information into the database about the visit or that that kind of thing is just, yeah, it can seem nonstop. But if we had a few moments to pause and say, what, what, what did I learn or what came out of this or what might I do next? And and even professionally, what might we want to do? What, what are the kinds of new skills we want to learn? or, Or what are the things that keep showing up that might make for a good? training or conversation with the team when I get back to the office, there's lots of opportunities to to reflect. Yes,
0: yes. And I really believe that reflection makes us better, so much better.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: All right. Question number four. What's your favorite fundraising tool or application?
1: Oh, wow. Um, Tool or application. So I would, um, you know, there's so many, you know, Databases and things out there now, so I wouldn't I wouldn't kind of name a particular one. But I'm going to think you know I'm an educator um, to this point about reflection and and hearing different stories and understanding things from a different perspective. I would just uh, raise up the Black Fundraisers podcast by Kia Kroom. I think that's a very um, powerful platform and tool that again is expanding the conversations within our field and 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 bringing new people to the table and sharing their experiences of being fundraisers and what that has meant pursuing issues related to social justice or diversity, equity, and inclusion, dealing with nuts and bolts fundraising issues, also dealing with interpersonal relations inside our organizations and with donors. There's just so many things going on. And so I think anything that can expand and give us insight into something we may not normally have exposure to and really good. And, and, and Key is such a great conversationalist and has some really wonderful guests. Disclosure, I have appeared on that, on that podcast, but that's not why I'm recommending it. There's a whole lot of other great episodes long before I ever got my recent opportunity. So that's, I think that's a very powerful tool. Yeah.
0: Wonderful. And we'll include a link to that podcast. Okay. okay. I need to go subscribe to that podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Now this one might get you into some trouble. Uh-oh. I I suspect you speak at a multitude of conferences and, yes. and I'm going to put you on the spot. <laughs> I'm going to ask what's your favorite fundraising conference and why? <laughs>
1: Wow. I have to say, I'll have to raise up the the African-American Development Officers Conference on Diversity and Philanthropy. And I raise that up because it is such a powerful conference for many reasons. One, it's an incredible thing to be in a ballroom with 400 black and brown fundraisers. Um, and they're not the only ones there. there. There are white fundraisers there. There are Asian fundraisers there. It is an open and inclusive conference. But it, it, you usually will not have that experience. But I think every fundraiser should have that experience so they can get the full true face of our field but rather than you know, a limited view of our field. And so I think every fundraiser would benefit from walking into that ballroom and seeing that and experiencing that. But then also, when you look at the kinds of sessions and conversations that are being had, it's very Different than what you might find at some of the other typical fundraising conferences, and so again to this point about opening up space and 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 asking different questions, sharing different narratives, I think that 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 one is particularly powerful, and and you know and, and there's there's other uh, groups that are doing that, um, you know. Woke Women of Color and Fundraising and Philanthropy is also having kinds of conversations and trainings and conferences you don't typically see. Um, there's a regional group out of Atlanta, F3, the Fabulous Female Fundraisers, that's doing some wonderful work, um, too, uh, along with Men of Color in Development and the Black Canadian Fundraising Collective and the Rooted. I could go on and on. So I just, these, these spaces that have, in some cases, been created over the past few years have really uh, brought new flavor, new conversations, new questions, new experiences, new voices, new faces to the table. And it's so important. And so I, I would raise, that's why I would raise them up in this moment.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. All right. Last question. Knowing what you know now about fundraising, what advice would you give your younger self who's just wow. getting started in the profession?
1: Wow. <laughs> You know, I think again, going back to Dr. Seiler, I think it's something. Um, uh, this idea of, of it being a privilege to ask, you know, on behalf of our missions and um, kind of getting that kind of orientation going early, I think is important. Was, that's a different way of thinking about this work. Because there's so many negative stereotypes out there about fundraisers and, and you know, and and, and kind of this this career that may not always be looked that by the public in in positive ways, but it really is a powerful and noble profession uh, when done ethically and, and with, with, you know, from a mission-based standpoint. And so, uh, you know, I would, I would kind of try to share that a little bit, bit more to understand that to my early self, who's trying to navigate and understand what's going on and how things work and, and, and really trying to not take some of the rejections so personally and trying to understand how things work. So embrace the privilege to ask it and focus on, on extending that mission.
0: That's so good. So good. (laughs) Dr. Freeman, you have been insightful and such a delight. Thank you. Oh,
1: thank you. Thank you. I've enjoyed being here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I know our listeners are going to want to learn more about you, Dr. Freeman, and your brilliant work. So everyone, check out the show notes where you'll find links to thegospelofgiving.com. You'll learn about many of the resources. We'll include all the books and the conferences. That Dr. Freeman mentioned, so you can to really lean into this and become more well versed and maybe understand more deeply or see spaces where you can lean in and contribute your voice. That would be, I think, this is such an important episode. Again, thank you, Dr. Freeman. We so appreciate you. And for all of our listeners, thank you. You know, thank you for continuing to show up and to transform your fundraising in all the ways that are open to us. And we've just, I think, got a few more pathways illuminated today. So keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. Until next time. Thank you to our friends at Bloomerang for supporting this episode. Learn why fundraisers love using Bloomerang and grab your copy of the 13 year end fundraising tips ebook at bloomerang.com forward slash intentional fundraiser. The link is in the show notes. That's it for this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. If you like this podcast, subscribe and download each episode on your favorite podcast platform. Share it on social media with the hashtag The TheIntentionalFundraiser and tag me, Tammy Zonker, and you'll be entered into a drawing for some great swag, books, and courses. And if you like today's show, you might also be interested in becoming a member of my Fundraising Transformer community, where I go live twice a month with my members, with fundraising training and group coaching to help transform those fundraising issues that keep you awake at night, where I pull back the curtain on how you can take your fundraising results to the next level by teaching ways you can improve your development operations, create a results-driven, donor-centric development plan, strengthen donor relationships, improve your donor retention rates, and build a raging monthly giving program and a successful major gifts program and how you can approach each day to ensure you'll perform at your highest level so you can be the best fundraiser and the best person you can possibly be. You can learn more about becoming a member at fundraisingtransform.com forward/transformers Thank you for showing up and for having the courage and determination to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. Bye for now.